And welcome back to the March of History. As always, I am your host, Trevor Furness. Along with co-host, Brandon Furness. Though it's only been a week since you've last heard our episodes, it's, it's been a while since we've recorded because we've been trying to get the previous 13 episodes edited and all of the, I guess, put out on iTunes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It took a lot more work than we expected. But we're back to recording and we're excited today. We have a great episode planned for you. A lot of things happen with Caesar, some wild events at the forum. But before we even get into that, I want to make an announcement of a more personal nature. So much like Caesar running for Pontifex Maximus or crossing the Rubicon, you know, taking big gambles and big risks for what he hopes to be big rewards, I'll be doing something similar in my personal life. I have been actually in, in business banking for the past four years and in business and banking and finance for five years. It's been good to pay off the mountain of student loans I had, but I would not call it my passion. And history has always been my passion. And I've come up with the idea to do this podcast and hope to turn it into a business and to bring a product that our audience likes each month and get sponsors, et cetera. So in that vein of thought, I'm actually going to be leaving my job. My last day is Tuesday, August, what is that? The 4th? Yeah, Tuesday, August 4th. So it would have already happened by the time you guys hear this, but we've got a few episodes in the uh, backlog. And the idea being that I'm actually going to head to Spain and teach English in Spain for a year. It's part-time work over there, so lots of time to work on the podcast. I'll be in Europe, so I'll be able to go to some of the sites of the battles that Caesar had in and around Spain and maybe to Elysia and France. And I don't know how exactly how we'll work that into the podcast, but maybe some live videos, maybe a YouTube channel, and hopefully you know grow this podcast and, and make it everything we want it to be. But the die is cast, and I've said adios to corporate America, and hello to the wonderful world of history podcasting. So I'm very excited about that. Love to hear it. And hopefully yeah. I'll get a chance to, to visit you while you're in Spain and you know see some of these sites. It's one thing to talk about them and to you know, even to hear all these elaborate descriptions of what was happening there when it was actually happening, but it's another thing to actually see the landscape where some hill that potentially some, some army was was on that, you know, charged down and, and flanked another um legion against uh some group of Gauls or, or whatever it is. And so it'll be cool to see that. Yeah, I'm excited for it because you can read about it all you want, but it's tough to imagine the terrain when you're just reading a description. But if I can show the audience on maybe our Instagram page or on Twitter or something, hey, here's the actual battlefield. Here's where the legions lined up on that hill. Here's where the Gauls were, or here's where Pompey's son's legions were. That's incredible. I don't think many podcasts are doing that. So, you know, we plan to grow this thing and to do it long term. And uh, I think that this is going to allow me to put a lot more time and energy into putting out quality content for our audience. Absolutely. Now, on a similar note, I've been learning a lot about, you know, how to grow the podcast. One thing is obviously social media. So I'm going to actually give you the tags to our social media this week because I know I've mentioned it in the past, but never actually said them. So you can follow us on Instagram. And we ask that you please do at the March of History just at the March of History, and then Twitter is at March underscore History. Uh, I've been posting content, including busts of Sola, Marius, Cato. We have Caesar on there. It's just basically a lot of different random history, but also things to do with the podcast. And it's a way to interact with us, so you can comment on the pictures or tweet at us. You can direct message us. Just ways for us to interact with the audience and, and build 
a uh, feeling of camaraderie among the different audience members. And also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Review it on the Apple Store if you listen on the podcast store and share with friends and family who are interested in history. We appreciate it. Now, back to the history. So we left off at the end of 63 BC. The Catalinarian conspiracy had been put down, and Cicero is a hero in Rome. Caesar's getting ready to begin his term as praetor and has been absent from the Senate since the attempt on his life. You'll remember those young hotheads ran into the Senate during the big debate when him and Cato were arguing and tried to cut him down with swords on the floor of the Senate. Caesar was so mad he didn't show up to the Senate for the rest of the year. Well, that year's near ending now, and Caesar's getting ready to become praetor and will return to the Senate. Yeah, I was going to say that's a wild thing that you know, someone just not even in Catullus didn't even get his name on the list, but right, just spread rumors about it to people. And from those rumors, some of Cicero's goons try to take Caesar's life. That's wild. It is wild. And we don't know for sure that it was Catullus that caused this, but there is one source that says – so here's the thing. There's a source that says that these guys just ran into the Senate meeting and tried to cut Caesar down of their own accord. And there's a source that said in the same meeting, it was when Caesar was leaving and he was walking at maybe down the steps of the temple and these young guys accosted him and tried to kill him. And the version that says it was after the meeting is the version that says that they had heard the things that Catullus was saying. Because you'll remember when this list came out of these conspirators, Catullus went to Cicero and tried to get Caesar's name put on it. Cicero said, no, I'm not putting his name on it. He's not part of the conspiracy. And Catullus just said, screw it, and went and told everybody that because he's you know, one of the most august members of the Senate. He's the head of the Optimate Party. He went around telling people that, yes, I saw the list and Caesar's name's on it. He's a conspirator. So these young guys had heard this and got it in their head that he was a conspirator and, and thought that he was obstructing the Senate from prosecuting these other conspirators and try to cut him down for it, <laughs> which, like Brendan said, is wild. And they were bodyguards yeah, I mean, of Cicero. Uh, yeah, it's got to be at the back of your head every, every time that you go to the Senate next time, you know, every, every appearance that you have, every speech that you make. And so, I mean, you know, it makes even the fact that Caesar continues to go back even after he becomes praetor is still pretty incredible. It is. I mean, this man has nerves of steel and no knock on Cicero, but we'll see times later where Cicero just has to see a glint of steel in the forum from soldiers because this happens later on and he just entirely loses his nerve and can't even give a speech. I can't imagine how Cicero would have reacted if he was almost cut down on the floor of the Senate. I don't imagine he would be giving many speeches after that. But Caesar's just got nerves of steel. And, and yes, he takes that time off either out of anger or out of fear for his life and doesn't come back to the Senate. I think it was more out of anger than anything. But, you know, he does come back and stronger than ever as Praetor. Yeah, no, it's just in- it's interesting that, I mean, I guess most people would say, and I, maybe there's some that would say otherwise, but oftentimes, you know, Cicero's supposedly the best speaker and you know all that's out the window though if he decides he can't speak at all because he's too scared to go onto the senate force so that's kind of interesting that something that's not directly your speaking ability has a huge influence on how well you speak that's a great point which i should say isn't to say that cicero never spoke with the threat of violence hanging over his head but it's a little bit different from having implicit threats of violence where you know that somebody could strike at you for saying this and knowing that somebody actually came at you on the floor of the Senate and tried to cut you down. You know, those are two very different things. And I know there's just one specific example where Cicero just completely shuts down when he sees any 
amount of soldiers or potential violence in the forum, even though in this in the case I'm I'm referring to, and we'll talk about it later, Cicero is actually I mean the guard the soldiers are there to protect Cicero and to stop any thugs from trying to break up the meeting. But still, just all it took was the glint of the armor and Cicero melted. Yeah, I mean when it's actually physically happening in front of you, I'm sure there's much more of a visceral response that you're your body has that you can't even control so i'm sure yeah yeah, yeah no another, i mean it's, it's easy for thing. us to throw stones when we're sitting over here in, in 2020 and don't have to worry about people cutting us down in the streets but no I, I definitely uh feel for them but getting back to the narrative so we're actually in december of 63 bc which is the same year that Catiline had a conspiracy and december 10th is when the new tribunes take office they take office before the Praetors, before the Consuls, before the Eight Isles, for whatever reason. I'm sure it goes back to some historical reason in Rome. I don't know it off the top of my head. But the tribunes take office, and among these new tribunes are a man named Quintus Metellus Nepos and Asso Cato, Caesar's biggest enemy, Cato. So they're both in office during this year. And already, before Cicero's even out of office in this year, 63 BC, in December, this guy, Nepos, who's actually Pompey's brother-in-law, starts attacking Cicero for putting down citizens illegally or putting them to death illegally. And it's customary for a consul to have a farewell speech at the very last day of their term. So in this case, the last day of December, they would get up in front of people and they would talk about all the great achievements they had had during their consulship and remind everybody of them and how great they had done for the Republic. And Cicero gets up to do this. And he is the great order. He is the greatest speaker Rome has. So you can imagine he's prepared a great speech. He's practiced it. He's put a lot of thought into it. He gets up to give it. And Nepo stands forward and goes, I interpose my veto. And just vetoes Cicero's speech altogether, which was an almost unheard of insult in Rome. Like a massive slap in the face to Cicero. Because now he's not allowed to talk about any of these great grand things that he's done. He's not allowed to give the speech that he's practiced so much for. He has to just sit down. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy whose whole identity is his voice, and now he's just, I guess, taking that away from him. I mean, I, I don't know how, if there's any kind of legality there. I think you were just saying that it was completely unprecedented, so I'm assuming that there's no, I mean, we use the, the term veto, so it sounds like they're doing something official, but I mean, really, there's no legal path for them to do what they did, I guess? No, I think it is allowed. So I oh, it is allowed. A, yeah, okay. the Tribune could veto anything and stop it. And I don't know that this has never happened before, but it's extremely rare because it's incredibly insulting and petty. And it's not just Nepos who does it. There's another Tribune who steps in and does it too, Lucius Bestia. Uh, but he's not really important for the story, but Nepos is. And Nepos is really Pompey's man. Remember Pompey, he's the glorious general that skips all the rungs in the ladder in Rome. Well, he's still fighting in the east against Mithridates, but he's getting ready to come home soon. And there's bills going on and, and people yelling out and, and trying to get support for bringing Pompey back from the east and giving him command of the peninsula of Italy to put it back in order and put down any rebellions. And this is a lot of people in the Senate and in Rome's worst nightmares to have this conquering army and, and have them come back from the east and give them control over the city of Rome sounds like a clear path towards autocracy. Yeah, I mean, the whole, you know, with the, the Catalan conspiracy, the whole thing that they were just trying to defend against was so un, 
marching army into Rome and now they're calling over their best general instead of, you know, a lesser one to come with probably a, you know, a more experienced, better army into. Oh, way into better. Army. So, this would be so I mean, it's regions. like, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of contradictory in that way. Yeah. And one of the reasons why Nepos is interposing this veto is because Pompey is mad that Cicero has basically solved this problem. Well, we don't know for sure because you can't read Pompey's mind. But, you know, this is such an insult. We can only think that Pompey's kind of resentful that Cicero resolved all these issues before he got a chance to come back and be the hero as he likes to be so much. And so this was kind of the opening salvo against Cicero by Pompey, letting him know that, you know, he's coming after him and he's not happy with Cicero. Yeah, for me, I always forget that we're kind of, it doesn't come to mind at first that there's this conflict or rivalry between Cicero and Pompey because their town seems so, like, in such different areas. Cicero, he's not a, he's not a, a general, he's not like a, someone who is good with war. His strength is his speaking. And then Pompey, He's someone who wasn't even in the Roman Senate, but rather just made leaps and bounds militarily. And then through those military feats has become very prominent in Rome. So I always think of them in not competing spaces, but then so I kind of forget that they have a rivalry between each other. Well, this is the first time I think that that really happens. The rivalry ignites between them. I don't know that's a long lasting rivalry, but it's, you know, Rome, the politics are always shifting. The ground's always shifting. So your enemy today could be your friend tomorrow, unless you're Caesar and Cato, in which case you're always going to hate each other <laughs> or Bibulus. Right. Caesar seems to have had like implacable feuds with people that never end, but that's not the case with most senators in Rome. But when people declared Cicero as the father of his country and having saved his country, they weren't just saying that he had saved it from Catiline. They believed that had this rebellion with Catiline kept on going and had it not been put down, then Pompey would have come in with, with his troops, declared martial law, and taken over the city. So they felt that he had as much saved the Republic from Pompey as he had from Catiline, which is an interesting perspective. I guess it must be different people that are now, even after the, the rebellion was put down, wanting Pompey to come in, keep things under control in the Italian peninsula versus the ones that maybe didn't even want him to be there even when the rebellion was still happening. So I guess those are two different groups of people. Yeah, and Caesar's actually one of the ones that wants to bring Pompey back. And okay. uh, uh. But it may be you know, more for just personal re- reasons to try to support Pompey and get on his good side. But anyway, getting back to Cicero, he's able to give you know an oath when you leave office. You should give an oath. And he kind of gives a spur of the moment off the top of his head oath in which he says that he saved his country, or that he saved the Republic. So he's able to save face to you know, some degree to at least announce that to everybody. But still, it's, it's a huge insult to, to Cicero. You can only imagine from Pompey, since Nepos is his proxy. And it was actually Nepos running for the tribuneship that prompted Cato to run for it, because Cato wasn't going to run And then he saw Nepos running, and he felt that Nepos was such a reckless individual that he needed somebody with a strong enough personality as a tribune to check him. So Cato ran to try to check him. And sure enough, Nepos starts things off with a bang. But first, let's get back to our main character here, Julius Caesar. And I realized I went back and listened to all the old episodes. 
I realize that I refer to all these historical figures as characters in a story as if they're not real. I don't mean it that way at all. You know, they're just, I call them characters because they're big personalities. They're funny to, you know, read about, but maybe I'll start calling them uh, people or something other than characters. Anyway, so Caesar takes office on January 1st and immediately launches an attack on Catullus. Remember, we just talked about Catullus was the arch optimate, basically the head of the optimate party, if you can call it a party. The one that spread all the rumors about him being one of the conspirators. Caesar hasn't forgotten this. And he's going to make Catullus pay for this. So on the very first day, January 1st, he launches an attack on Catullus in the forum. He gets up on the rostra. He starts denouncing Catullus and he summons him. And basically what he's saying is that about 15 years ago, Catullus had been assigned the job of rebuilding the temple of Jupiter on the Capitoline Hill. It had burned down five years before that. After five years, they gave the job to Catullus to rebuild it. But it's been 15 years and still not finished. And so Caesar summons Catullus to this meeting to hold him to account for why it was not yet complete and charges him at this meeting with embezzling funds allocated to him by the Senate. And Catullus attempts to climb onto the rostra, which is like the stage that Caesar's on, to try to speak in his defense. And Caesar, in a calculated insult, stops him from mounting the rostra and makes him speak from ground level to the crowd, <laughs> which I think is just such a funny and petty thing to do, but probably extremely effective, too, to make him speak from a lower level than Caesar. You know, he had to stand a few feet below Caesar when he was speaking to him. I think that's a, it's pretty funny. And Caesar then proposes a bill that would strip Catullus of this duty and give it to somebody else, which would be a great dishonor to Catullus. But there's a procession of optimates i believe that they were leading somebody to on their first day of office somewhere and they, and they heard about this and so they all come running down in, in catullus's defense and to oppose caesar and caesar seeing all of a sudden a, a lot of opposition ends up backing down but it, it wasn't so much it's like caesar's court cases it's not really about winning it's about making a statement putting catullus on notice that caesar's coming for him one of these days and that he's going to champion popular causes. Now, the next thing, Brendan, involves Nepos again. So Caesar then actively supports Nepos, who tries to bring a bill before the Senate to bring Pompey back and give him command to restore order in Italy. This is the biggest fear of, of definitely the Optimates, but many in Rome. And Caesar fully supports him. And Cato, his fellow tribune, aggressively fights against Nepos and Caesar. He attacked them in the Senate personally, not physically, but you know, character attacks, and swore that while he was breathing, Pompey would never enter the city with soldiers under command. So honestly, I'm not always the biggest fan of Cato, but in this case, I agree with Cato. So, so you know, bravo to him for standing up for the Republic and, and not allowing them to bring Pompey back with troops in the city. Now... On the day of the vote, Nepos held an informal meeting at the temple of Castor and Pollux, which is, as I understand it, in the forum, but the opposite side from the rostra. And people had meetings at this temple every so often because it gave a lot more room if you had a big crowd. It was, if you've seen the Lincoln Monument in Washington, D.C., there is a set of stairs that goes up and then kind of a flat area and then a second set of stairs 
So it would be like that, and they would speak from the flat area in the middle to the people down maybe on the stairs or below the stairs, and it would just leave them a lot more room. And so Nepos ha- holds this meeting to try to read out the bill to the people to explain to them why they're trying to bring Pompey back, what they want to accomplish with this, and why it's a good thing. So on this platform of this temple, similar to the Lincoln Memorial, you would have seated a number of senators and top people supporting the bill and the crowd all below them. And Caesar sits up there and places his chair next to Nepos to show support for him. Caesar's a praetor. He gets a special chair of office and he makes sure to be seen physically next to Nepos to let people, let people know that he's in support of this bill. And Nepos had stationed several gladiators and other large burly men and placed them around the forum to defend the tribunes in case there were any issues. These kind of forum bullying tactics are becoming more and more common in Rome. Now, as the meeting's getting started, suddenly who shows up but Cato? And Cato shows up with another tribune named Quintus Minucius Thermus. We're just going to call him Thermos, like uh, you would have a Thermos today uh, to keep your coffee hot. But they come, not just those two, they come with a whole crowd of followers. And Cato and Thermos walk right up to the podium where Caesar and Nepos are seated. And Cato, with no fear, walks right between Nepos and Caesar and puts his seat there and sits in between them to separate them. And for a moment, Caesar and Nepos are thrown off by how bold of a move this is by Cato because he walks into a a meeting of people that are not necessarily fond of him, that are supporters of Nepos, supporters of Caesar, and just walks straight up on their stage and sits down like it's no big deal. I can't picture if this is like just the whole the whole um see that's going on here if it's petty or if it's or if it's bold or what it is but it's just interesting you know the politics of this is getting down to the placement of these guys chairs with respect to each other versus what they had to say or or what it is they're proposing so it's kind of a wild idea that's getting down to that i I mean it's more than than that too yeah, yeah i think things are much more physical then too like people would take each other by the hand and you know a lot of sayings that we have might be I sit or I stand with this person they would literally stand with that person they i guess maybe were more demonstrative in their actions for example we talked about how in the senate if somebody was speaking people agreed with them they would go stand next to them so they wouldn't just say I stand by you they would actually literally go stand by you <laughs> so people yeah so maybe in, yeah maybe something that's lost in this translation then that it's not as out of place or seemingly yeah. maybe maybe petty of moving your chair up between the people that you're you're debating against to try yeah, to throw them off or something. I think the Roman crowd paid a lot of attention to this kind of context. You know, there wasn't as much to distract you. Nobody had cell phones. There wasn't TVs. They weren't trying to get their time on camera. There was a crowd watching, and they had to have a show for them to keep them interested, right? And I think that the crowd paid attention to these kind of things. But Nepos takes a few minutes because he's almost startled at the boldness of this. But then he, he kind of recovers. And he begins to read, or he has a clerk begin to read this bill to the gathered crowd. And as he does that, Cato stands up and vetoes this. Says they're not allowed to read the bill to the crowd. Which... 
this is where Cato loses me because this is not I disagree with the bill, but you gotta you know, at least in modern societies we all agree that freedom of speech is a good thing. And so here's Cato trying to silence their speech so they can't pass this bill rather than debating their ideas. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of Yeah, I wonder how they would have taken that the crowd at that point. I mean certainly today, you know, that would be the best way to lose the the debate, not to win it, to to just take away the opposing person that you're debating against to take away the right to speak. But I wonder how the Romans would have interpreted him just literally not just taking away the bill and not letting him read it. Yeah. And it's not illegal what he's doing, but it's certainly petty and obnoxious and obstructive, right? And I'll say one thing I forgot to mention. So when Cato came in so bold and walked right up onto the stage like this, and sat himself between Caesar and Nepos, the crowd was surprised by this too. And they actually began to cheer for Cato, or at least a good portion of them began to cheer for Cato because they just loved that he was that bold like that. But there's still a fair amount of the crowd that was pro-Nepos because this is Caesar supports Nepos, but this is really Nepos's bill. And so there's a lot of tension building the crowd at this point. So then imagine the tension builds even more once they veto the reading of this bill, which they've all gathered there to hear and they've heard so much about and they want to know more about it. And Cato says you're not allowed to talk about it. But Nepos is not one to be put down by this, and he is a tribute himself, so he ignores Cato's veto, and he picks – the clerk won't read it anymore, but Nepos picks up the bill and begins to read it himself. And Cato gets up and snatches the bill out of his hands. Again, extremely obnoxious and obstructive. <laughs> And then Nepos, who knew the bill by heart, begins to recite it by heart to the people. And the other tribune, Thermos, gets up and slaps his hand over Nepos' mouth and tries to stop him from speaking at all. Nepos then, either having just lost his temper or panicking, I don't know which, gives the signal to his his armed guards, his, his thugs and gladiators, and the entire forum in you know, this big crowd just breaks out into chaos. It starts out with sticks and stones, the riot, and then it progresses to fighting with edged weapons in the forum and people are getting beat on. It's just absolute chaos. This is not the way Rome would like to conduct its politics, but it's increasingly what keeps happening. And Cato and Thermos get manhandled in the fighting and Cato's actually physically protected from harm by a man named Morena, who was a consul that Cato recently prosecuted. But this guy stepped in to defend Cato physically. And the meeting breaks up eventually, but not after, I mean, after a lot of rioting and beating on each other. And I don't know if anybody died or not. None of the sources say, but this does not make anybody involved in this meeting look good. And so shortly after this, the Senate passes the ultimate decree. That's the same one that Cicero used to put down the conspirators and that Caesar tried to show was dangerous. And they also put forward a proposal to strip Nepos of his tribunate. But Cato, of all people, recommends against this. So that that proposal is dropped. Kind of interesting there, right? And Cato was so willing yeah. to stop him but didn't want him thrown out of the tribuneship. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm curious why he would have done that if there was something else that he was, was it was it an honor thing that he just wanted, he didn't, but he did just try to rip the paper from his hands, so it's almost like <laughs> yeah. he, he already was taking away his position as Tribune, but then he doesn't want to literally take it away, so that's kind of definitely, either we're 
we're missing some information that got lost, you know, over time. Or, you know, there's just some kind of bizarre behavior from Cato. Well, I, th- I think it's one of two things. Either it's realpolitik where Cato want, doesn't want the sympathy to then go towards Nepos that people are saying, I can't believe they threw him out of office like that. Yeah. And then suddenly he's got sympathy and he can claim to be aggrieved. Or Cato just didn't believe in throwing tribunes out of office. That that was a sacred role as tribune. And though he had done things wrong as tribune, he shouldn't be thrown out of office by the Senate. That that shouldn't be allowed. My guess is one of those two things, but I could be wrong. But Nepos is just as reckless as Cato said he was, and he's fired up about this. And I mean, I would be too if you had a meeting planned, but you know, Nepos is the one who turned it into a riot. And so he holds another meeting in the forum, and then he accuses Cato in the Senate of a plot against Pompey and says that they will soon pay a price for this. And that's pretty ominous, right? And then he flees Rome. Now, tribunes really couldn't leave Rome at all. They sort of stay in Rome at all times, but he doesn't just leave Rome. He leaves the entire peninsula of Italy, and he goes and runs to Pompey in Rhodes. That makes me wonder. So first off, they consider getting him out of the office. Cato defends him, says that he should stay in the office, or at least maybe not defends him, but doesn't like the idea of him getting taken stripped of the office. But then right afterward, he leaves anyway, so, while he's still in the office. I, what I'm wondering is, did Cato know that he was going to leave the Pompey and wanted him to keep the office so that it would look worse on his part? He still has the office, but he's leaving Rome, breaking the tradition of having to stay in Rome when you are the Tribune. So I wonder, I mean, it's just speculation, but it'd be interesting if Cato did know about his plan to flee to Pompey. And so therefore, maybe that's the reason that he wanted um, him to stay in the Tribune role so that he'd be breaking that that tradition. That could be, and honestly, that would be a very Cato-like thing to do. Now, Cato is clever in his own way. Though, the one thing that surprised me in all this is that after Nepos flees, Cato and the Optimates don't say a word about this being illegal. They don't raise a stink about it. Which, I mean, if, if you're all about following the norms of the, of the Republic, regardless of where that leads, then you should have a problem with Nepos leaving. But it seems that it was very convenient for them that Nepos was leaving and not causing them any more problems. So they were happy to overlook the fact that it was illegal for him to leave and they weren't going to try to keep him in Rome. Yeah, so that so then that kind of makes me think otherwise, my, my theory just before. I mean, because you would think if... If he was using it, if he wanted him to keep the Tribune position and then accuse him of leaving that position when he flees to Pompey, that he would, he'd make a big deal about it. But the yeah. fact that he kind of just let it go makes you think that it wasn't a planned thing, but they're just happy to have him gone. Yeah, and I don't know that he said nothing about it, but nothing makes it into the history books. So usually if Cato makes a big stink about something, if it's if it's big enough stink, then it's going to make it into the history books. But nobody says anything about Cato getting up in arms about this. They don't give him a hard time. They don't give Nepos a hard time about this. And it's never brought up again. So in my mind, it, it kind of feels like the Optimates love enforcing the traditions of the Republic when it serves them. But as soon as it serves them to ignore the traditions and let Nepos leave, then they're perfectly okay. Now, in their defense, I don't know what they could have done if they could have held him in Rome. But they certainly didn't raise a stink about the fact that he had left. 
Yeah, yeah, no, it definitely kind of shows a double standard. One for, you know, where they they enforce the the traditional rules when it suits them, and then when it doesn't suit them, I'm sure they don't make a a big scene of actively going against them, but they're willing to turn a blind eye if someone is breaking it and it suits them. Yeah, yeah, I agree. What does all this mean for Caesar, too? Because he was there and he was supporting Nepos. Nepos almost got thrown out of the Senate and had to flee Rome or felt that he had to flee Rome. Yeah, I mean, Nepos kind of left Caesar high and dry there on the... <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, supporting him and then he, he takes flight. I mean, and not yeah. only that, but to, you know, to Pompey kind of a... I mean, maybe they're not quite rivals, but... um. Oh, they're not definitely not rivals at this point. Caesar's yeah. nowhere near on Pompey's level. Pompey's a different level than Caesar. But Nepos, being Pompey's brother-in-law, can rely on Pompey to protect him. You know, maybe he felt that the riot had gone too far, and he felt that his life wasn't safe in Rome anymore. I'm not exactly sure why he fled. He never really explains himself. But Caesar definitely could not rely on Pompey to protect him. One, because they just weren't that close and didn't know each other that well. Pompey's been gone for near five years now in the East either fighting pirates or fighting in the East. And two, and this is the more important point, Caesar's been sleeping with Pompey's wife while, while and, and Nepos' half-sister, Mukia, while Pompey's been away. So, again, Caesar just astounds me because he slept with Crassus's wife now. He slept with Pompey's wife. He's sleeping with Cato's half-sister. I mean, there's nobody that he wouldn't potentially be pissing off by this kind of behavior, but he doesn't seem to care. Yeah, it's kind of funny in a way. Yeah, it's, it seems like it's just beyond me how he could even attempt any kind of politicking when he's sleeping with everyone's family members or, or wives, <laughs> you know, without discretion. And somehow, I mean, yeah, maybe he sits next to this guy when, uh, you know, on the steps of the, which building was that? The uh, Temple of Castor and Pollux. Yeah, the, the, temp, the Temple of Castor. Boy, I mean... Uh, so at at that point, do we? Does he know? Is he aware that that Caesar's uh, sleeping with his what his his half sister? Yeah, I'm sure he knows it because he's in Rome. Maybe maybe Pompey didn't know, but oh, yeah. I I have to imagine Nepos knew and just didn't care. And I don't know if it's the type of thing where people were just happy that they even had an in with a guy with, who's as high born as Caesar, so are happy just to you know have some like. If his half sister is going to introduce him to Julius Caesar, he's like, yeah, all right, maybe no he's even, even yeah, pimping out his sister just to, you know, <laughs> maybe it's be. the other way around. I mean, it could yeah, no, be. maybe maybe there's a lot of that with these senators, but but then you have guys like Crassus that he definitely wasn't doing that. He doesn't need that, you know, unless he just didn't care. I don't know. It's very bizarre that Caesar is able to get away with all this. I mean, he certainly seemed to have a way with women because everybody seemed all these women seem to be willing constantly to have affairs with him, but how he did it and had their husbands still work with him in politics is maybe a testament to his political abilities. The fact that he could still get them to work with him, even though he was doing all these things, I don't know, but it is pretty wild. Right. When you think about it, I mean, I don't know if you call it boldness of doing that. It's almost just crazy. Why you, he's trying to get on Pompey's good side by supporting these bills while sleeping with Pompey's wife. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it definitely seems reckless. I don't know. It, I mean, I would think that it kind of even, he must not have had or lacked some kind of control over, um, I don't know. I mean, who knows what the actual situation was and how much the the other senators cared. Yeah, they may not have cared as much as we think because they weren't love matches per se. They were political alliances. So 
But it seems that Caesar did it as much for the power as for any sexual pleasure, just to prove to these senators that not only was he better than them in the forum and in the Senate, but he was better than them in the bedroom too. But Caesar's got a problem now. The Senate's not happy with him for his part in all of this. He didn't bring the armed supporters to the meeting. He didn't call for them to start beating on people in the crowd, but he was still a vocal supporter of the bill and backing Nepos. So the Senate puts forward a decree actually expelling Julius Caesar from his praetorship only a few weeks into the praetorship. Now Caesar tries to just ignore this altogether and continue his duties as praetor and appears publicly with his trappings of office and tries to go about his business in the courts and just pretend like this never happened. Just kind of bluster his way through it. And then Caesar learns that some senators are actually ready to oppose him with force if he continues to do this. So seeing the writing on the wall, he dismisses his lictors, which are his bodyguards that hold the fasces, the bundle of rods that we talked about, that are his symbol of power, and takes off his toga protexa, which is what he would wear when in office, and he walks on home to the, they call it the Dumas Publica, which is the mansion that he has in the forum now as the Pontifex Maximus. And then he makes it known that he's retiring from public life altogether. He won't even be in the Senate anymore, which, you know, a man as ambitious as Caesar, you can't imagine that that's true, right? That this man was ever going to live the rest of his life as a private citizen, never involved in politics again. But this seems to be calculated. And the next day, a crowd gathers outside his house because, remember, Caesar is the champion of the common man. And this crowd gathers outside, and they say that they're ready to help him restore his fortunes by any means necessary. And Caesar goes out and speaks to them and persuades them to be calm and to go home, and that he doesn't want them to do anything crazy. And the Senate's very impressed by this when they hear about this, because they panicked and were rushing to meet because they heard about this crowd gathering outside of Caesar's house. And when they hear this, they're so impressed with Caesar that they reinstate him as a praetor for the year, and he's welcomed back into the Senate again. And the big question about all this is, the crowd that gathered outside of Caesar's house, was it real? Was it organic? Or was it orchestrated by Caesar in a move to make himself look good to the Senate? Or was it a mixture of both? Was it some orchestrated and some organic? We don't know the answer, and, and history will never know the answer. But regardless, it shows Caesar's ability to Realize when he's made a rare mistake, because he doesn't make that many of them, but he does occasionally make a mistake. Realize when he's made one and figure out a way to come back from it. Because it sounds simple to say, oh, Caesar got booted from the praetorship and retired from public life, and then he's back the next day. But if you've ever been a part of something that you care a lot about, whether it's a company or an organization, and things end up getting so toxic and hostile that you get thrown out of your position that's got to make you feel really nervous, right? Especially if you're a patrician of the Julii, that entire family is expecting him to be consul at the very least. Yeah, I mean, to me, I can't imagine that he would have left his position without some kind of plan for how he's going to get back into the Senate. Yeah. And so in my opinion, I feel like he wouldn't have left it since the outcome was that you know, this riot showed up and then he told him to not do anything too crazy and just, you know, disband. I would think that he would have had to have known 
that that was going to happen. Unless he had some other plan, and then just by chance, by luck, that happened to happen. And in a uh, an act of opportunism, he decided to to change his plan. I would think that he would have already had had some kind of plan before he decided to leave the position. So if if there wasn't some other plan, then I, I feel like he must have orchestrated the the riots, and that you know that would be that they were not completely organic. But otherwise, um, yeah, I would have thought that he had some kind of other plan, but then just took it. So the opportunity, took advantage. Yeah, saw the opportunity, and then switched his plan to this. Yeah, I mean, I could see either one being true. You'll see later on in as when he's a military commander in Gaul, he thinks at lightning speed, faster than most people. So it's easy to imagine that he may have had one plan in his mind when he went home that day and the next day saw this crowd and said, this is the perfect opportunity and saw an opportunity that maybe others wouldn't have or they would have seen a different opportunity to egg the crowd on and try to attack the Senate and ended up like Catiline. But Caesar saw the opportunity to prove himself to the Senate, how good he was doing. And maybe it was, like Brandon said, maybe, maybe it was orchestrated from the beginning when he left the forum that day and thought, you know, in his head, well, I have an idea. Let's start gathering supporters for tomorrow. I don't know. But either way, it's a, it's a brilliant move by him. Well, who knows? Maybe, maybe he was really sick of it and he just wanted to retire. You know, an early <laughs> retirement for Caesar. What's he, what's, what age is he? Around, you know, early 30s or something? Maybe he just wanted yeah, to, early to, mid-30s. To, to find a villa in the uh, the Italian coast and just chill out for the rest of his life. <laughs> I don't believe it for a second because he, <laughs> Caesar was nothing if not ambitious. I mean, this is a man whose ambition was just overweening in a republic filled with ambition, ambitious men. Caesar was head and heels above everybody in ambition. And even later on, once he becomes above and beyond everybody else in the Republic, he still plans crazier and, and more outlandish expeditions and wars to try to win more glory. He seems to have never had enough of it. So I, I can't even begin to contemplate the idea that he was ready to retire then. That was, in my mind, entirely false. <laughs> but he plays yeah, so I, I wonder... At this point, what is other people? What are other people's perceptions of Caesar? Because, I mean, in our minds, we know that that's the way he is. That he would never just retire in some villa on the coastline or, or something like that. That obviously he wants to still play the game. But I'm curious why either they didn't know that the other Romans or somehow they were tricked into thinking. Like I, I'm wondering how they accepted that as a sincere. Well, maybe they never thought that that part was sincere. Maybe they thought he was just in a huff about the fact that they had done this to him and that he would get over it eventually. But the fact I think that, that he they put down the riot. Yeah, they were impressed that he had behaved in that way because maybe he was being accused of creating this kind of riot in the forum before, along with Nepos, and causing chaos in the Republic. And here you have him acting responsibly. And you probably have a lot of older senators that are looking at this and saying, hey, he's a young man. He's learning. Look, you know, he may have done some mistakes with Nepos, but here he is telling the crowd to be peaceful and go home. That's the kind of behavior we want to see. We're going to reward that kind of behavior. Yeah. But I, I don't know how much him saying that he's going to retire affected the Senate's view. I think that's more to egg the people on because the idea that people are going to lose their champion is going to get them real fired up. OK, right. And another thing I just thought about, another angle is he's got these insurmountable debts right now. 
this idea that he's going to retire quietly from public life with all these debts that he has and all these financiers expecting returns on these debts. That's crazy. Yeah. 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 It does. He can't even, he can't even do it. it. He doesn't have a choice at that point to even retire if he wanted to. So yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. It was all posturing in my mind, but so he, he gets back to his praetorship, but the troubles aren't over for Caesar. More things happen. So Catiline's dead, but there's still denunciations of fellow citizens going on. And this is happening, we believe, because there's monetary rewards being given out by the Republic for people with information on conspirators. And a man named Quintus Curious, if you remember back to our episodes on Catiline when Cicero was trying to find out what Catiline was up to, and that kind of goofy guy, Quintus Curious, really it was his, his lover that went and told Cicero's wife who told Cicero about this conspiracy because he was had lost all his money and this woman had lost interest in him. And then he started bragging to her about how he was going to come into some grand power and he was going to be a great man in the Republic and she wasn't sure what the heck he was talking about. And then pressed him on it and figured out that he was involved in this Catalan conspiracy. And then she convinced him to tell Cicero all about it. So he got a full pardon because he was the first rat to <laughs> rat out the conspiracy. Just trying to refresh your memory. So this man, Quintus Curious, who was always considered to be pretty dopey, then says that he puts Caesar's name forward as part of the conspiracy and says that Caesar was among the conspirators with Catiline to take down the Republic. And he puts forward money because you had to lodge a certain amount of money with the Senate to do this as you know, you have to have something to lose to, to try to attack somebody else's good name, right? And another man comes forward and attacks Caesar too. His name is Lucius Vettius, and he is a equestrian man of low birth and low character. But he says that he has – I say low character because he was kind of like a seedy guy. But he says he has a, a letter from Caesar in his own handwriting to Catiline that he can show to prove that Caesar was in on this conspiracy. And Caesar handles both these accusations in two different ways. By this point in his praetorship, it hasn't, it's only probably still in the first few weeks – He's had enough. He's, he's done with people attacking him and trying to throw him out of the Senate all the time. So he, for Curious, who's a, a member of the Senate, he goes to Cicero and appeals to him and says, hey, Cicero, did I not bring you evidence of, the, of this conspiracy? Did I not inform you of everything I found? Was I not helpful in the entire thing? And Cicero corroborates all this and says, yes, he was. He had nothing to do with the conspiracy. He helped me throughout it, and his name does not belong on any list. And so the Senate then seizes Quintus Curious is money, and he loses his money. That one's quashed. That accusation's squashed. No more. Now, Vettius, being of low social status and questionable character, can be handled in quite a different way. And Caesar, now as a reinstated praetor, orders him to appear before the rostra, which is, again, their stage in the forum. And there, a crowd has gathered around the rostra that loves Caesar. And Caesar orders this man to be thrown in jail... But the crowd nearly tears him to pieces because they're so pro-Caesar and hate this guy so much for trying to take him down for no reason or for what they see as no reason. And so they nearly tear him to pieces. They get him away from the crowd and they throw him in jail. It's likely that he was – the Romans, like we said, don't really have a jail. It's like that little makeshift thing. So he likely didn't stay in there for very long, but it was very embarrassing for him and he got beat up. So that's not fun either. Yeah, just earlier we were talking about how what Cicero did – I mean – Granted, he was putting these, in Cicero's case, these conspirators to death. 
without a trial. It seems like Caesar just now, or these people just put Vettius into prison without much of a trial, or maybe that's just a, an in-between so that, you know, they, they will have a trial and then decide what to do with them. I don't know. I think, yeah, I think it's th- that one. Because, I mean, Caesar is an elected official. He's a praetor. They're in charge of the courts. Now, it's funny. I read one book that says Caesar ordered them to beat on this guy. But then when I went to the primary source, Suetonius, who talks about the story, he just says that the crowd was in a frenzy and went after the guy. But the other person that Caesar's got a bone to pick with is this man named Nobius Niger. And Nobius Niger was the guy who was basically the ranking official on the court or the tribunal that allowed Vettius to bring forward this complaint. And Caesar has Novius Niger also sent to jail for letting a magistrate of superior rank, meaning Caesar, be indicted in his tribunal. I guess that that was improper for him to be doing. Caesar has him hauled off to jail, too. Now, these guys are getting locked up for years or anything. They're probably let out the next day or something. But it's deeply, deeply embarrassing for them to be manhandled this way and to be th- thrown in prison by somebody who's also in the Senate or, you know, Novius Niger probably is in the Senate. So this is Caesar showing that. If you come at me with what he sees as false accusations, I will strike back and you're not going to get off scotch free. You know, this is not come take target practice at Caesar Day. I hit back. It's kind of an interesting glimpse into his character there. Yeah, I mean, it certainly helps that. At least from from what I can tell, from what we can tell, it seems that he was on the on the right side. He did not, in fact, he was not, in fact, a co-conspirator, it seems. And so. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's good politics to make a example of these people that are clearly doing something that's completely false. There's ma- making up this accusation and then coming down hard on them. And then the next time someone does try to maybe do something that's a little bit more, you know, that's not completely falsified, then um, it'll uh, set more of a precedent that you're not yeah. going to, to be a pushover. Yeah, exactly. It shows that maybe they thought Caesar was a weak target for some reason and found out the hard way that, no, this man knows how to hit back. They also learned, I mean, it's, it's an example of how clever Caesar is because it it's easy just to say, oh, then this happened and that happened and then he threw the guy in jail. But there's many, many, many different ways that all of this could have been handled. And maybe a lesser politician would have blundered and gotten themselves into hot water and people would have believed the accusations but Caesar knew exactly how to handle this. He went to Cicero, had him back him with the other guy. He didn't need Cicero's help. He just threw him in jail. He understands the system and what can be done, what can't be done, and he's a clever politician. Yeah, I mean, the second that you try to debate with someone like this, that just completely making something up, you instead of uh, you know trying to push it down, to shut it down, instead you're entertaining it, you're validating it, that this is something that should be discussed. Like, oh, it could be true, but, you know, by by shutting it down quickly, you know, nippy in the bud before that even happens, then taint yourself by even dealing with these people. Yeah. It's like these people are beneath me. Watch me squash them like bugs. <laughs> yeah. But it's a cool story though. But that's where we're going to wrap up today. We're trying to keep the episodes, or I think we're going to try to keep the episodes a little bit shorter. That's one thing I want to say is we would love feedback from our audience. You know, you can send us messages on Twitter or on Instagram, or if you have any kind of suggestions, maybe shorter episodes, maybe more of this, less of that, we're happy to hear it. You know, we're looking to improve this podcast any way possible, and we want to interact with our audience. But that is it for today. 
And like I said, I'm going to be headed to Spain in mid-September, but Brendan and I are going to keep on recording just like we do now over Skype or Zoom. And uh, hopefully I can get to some of these real battle scenes where Caesar was and really give you a glimpse of, of the actual field of battle itself. I think that would add a lot to the podcast. Anything else you want to add, Brendan? Yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing, and again, on, on the Instagram page, if anyone you know wants to follow to keep up with the actual places, the scenes that Trevor's seeing in Spain throughout the rest of Europe, follow the Instagram page. And I'm looking forward to seeing those scenes too so that I myself can get a, a better picture of the areas that we're talking about. That's a good point. And follow the Instagram because I put up pictures of the things that we're talking about. Bus of, of uh, what's his name? Oh, it's his planet. Sola. And you can see how crazy Sola looks. I have a bus of Marius, of Cato. There's one of Caesar. You can see what these men actually look like and have an idea of who I'm talking about when we're having these discussions. I put up a picture of what the Roman Forum looked like. And I'm going to continue to put up pictures of different things that we talk about throughout. And it's not all going to be exactly related to the podcast. Sometimes I'll have pictures of other areas of history. But I figure anybody who's interested in a history podcast is going to enjoy a variety of history content on an Instagram account. So I think it will be good. But uh, yeah, we look forward to interacting with you. And we'll see you next time on the March of History.